Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. What a great song that is. Rich truth. Testimony. Yes, I was thinking that as we were singing. Just uh, hidden in the hollow of, of his hand, we can find perfect rest. Um, certain points of life, certain texts of Scripture connect with you. Psalm 61 is one which speaks of those truths of looking to the rock that is higher than us, and that has been a source of comfort for me. Every time I turn my eyes on myself, I'm, I'm looking in the wrong direction. I have to remind myself that I'm hidden in the hollow of His hand, and so that's tremendous encouragement. And also, I appreciate the transparency of the testimony. I think it's important for people to realize that we all are prone to uh, momentary forgetfulness, right? And uh, Jay as well, very similar kind of a testimony. Uh, we, we go back and forth, but we need to keep coming back to the rock that is higher than us. And so thankful for that. Matthew 7, 1 through 6, my title is called Judging Others, but the first word says judge not. Um, So let's read the text and we'll pray and we'll look into it. It says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Heavenly Father, I just ask for grace and wisdom to communicate well this text, that uh, you would help um, the heart of what you were communicating to be seen well. And I just ask that uh, in the process that we would recognize the importance of self-examination, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So there are some who turn to this text of Scripture and would say, Don't point the finger at all. Don't be judging others. Uh, And while that's certainly true, we ought not to, we ought to be careful, it kind of flies a little bit in the face of the context, and uh, I think it's important for us to understand the context so that we can understand the message that's in these verses. Uh, In particular, uh, Jesus is not saying no judging whatsoever for any reason, Uh, In fact, if you look at verse 6, the very last verse that I read, there's judging going on. I mean, there's evaluation going on. There's discernment. There's spiritual perception happening, evaluating where people are at. In fact, if you you follow the verses down in chapter 7, you come to verse 15. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So there has to be at some level discernment had. Uh, You keep going down um, uh, to verse 20. Um, 
It says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So you have, again, fruit inspection. You're looking at fruit on the tree, and you're evaluating what's coming out and then making assessments based on what you see. So Jesus is not getting at judging per se. He's getting at the issue of a hypercritical spirit, which is a continually in a state of judgment on others. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's talking about a, sens- a censorious type of, a censorious type of spirit uh, that puts everyone underneath the microscope. It's a distorted vision, actually, is what he's demonstrating here by application. Earlier in the message, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at chapter 6 and verse 22, he says that the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If you're not able to see clearly your own heart, you're not able then to evaluate others properly. This is what Jesus is getting at. In fact, some people are so concerned of the approval of another master that they begin to judge everyone else around them against what their master would say. And if their master is not God, they might be evaluating people based upon the perceptions of others and not actually God looking for the approval of men. What I mean by this is that some people want their deeds to be seen by other people. And what they begin to do is they set this expectation up as the paramount expression of godliness. And so therefore, if it's not actually what brings approval from God, they start telling other people, you've got to start doing it exactly the way this is. And so you create this scenario in which you begin to judge other people against a criteria that is not actually God's criteria at all. It becomes a a pattern of self-righteousness. It's a desire to be superior. We want other people to live up to our performance expectations. And so we want to feel right when actually we are not right at all. It's pride. It's a lack of grace. It's a lack of humility. It is anti the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shows that we're serving another master and we're not serving God at all. How does the spirit show up? Well, there's several ways that this can show up, this judgmental attitude, and particularly, if we think about it, it can happen in which we spend a lot of our time expressing opinion about people that we have never even met before. Facebook is a tremendous opportunity for this. We all can, in the comfort and quiet of our little home, type out a little statement about people that we don't even know and evaluate them and judge them and and portray things about them. That is a tendency that shows up And actually, it can create a malicious uh, pleasure. It could manifest itself in that way. But it's also possibly, too, it shows up in terms of prejudice instead of principles. Sometimes we allow our own personal preferences and likes and dislikes to overlook principles. And if we're not careful, we can do that. We can also let our, our... like of certain personalities, color principle as well. 
I mean, we can allow a distaste for certain individuals to cloud biblical principle. And then we become judging of thoughts and motives of other people. And there's a gracelessness that expresses itself. Sometimes we express our opinion of others without knowing all the facts, and this is how it shows up, this this censorious type of spirit. We don't know all the facts about this individual, and we jump to conclusions to conclude, therefore, they've got a bad heart, and there's something terribly wrong with them. Well, that, that, that is a... That is a, an example of this kind of a, a spirit. Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, he is, it is a, a folly and shame. Another way it crops up is that we have a tendency at times to excuse or even to, to um, extend mercy to people just based upon um, just the personality rather than the principle. And so sometimes we don't, we don't listen to all the details that are involved. And really what this boils down to is that we're making a final verdict. We're making a judgment call that is really not ours to, to, to give. And I believe that there are three considerations from this text that we need to consider in what Jesus is telling us. And first is, number one, it's found in verse one. When you do this, you're at risk of being judged by God. That's very simple. But Jesus says, he says, judge not that you be not judged. And it says, you don't see the words by God, but that's the implication based on the whole context. This text is not limiting judgment to that which is in kind from other people, but this is referring to the kind of judgment that comes from God himself. How do I see this? Well, turn back to chapter 6 and verse 4 at the very end. Jesus says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, the implication is if God sees you in secret, then he also knows the secrets of your heart and will judge you for those as well. Verse 18, the the reiteration of this point, the very end, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so you have... um, admonitions from verse 19 all the way to the end of chapter 6 to encourage you to, thank you, to encourage you to um, focus your heart after God and the benefits, the rewards of that that are there, if you have an anxiousness of heart, of turning your heart to God, there will be definitely Uh, reward there. God will supply your every need. But a heart that is turned in on itself and is concerned only about what other people think and then starts to evaluate everyone else and be critical of everyone else is going to be subject to the judgment of God. This is what is being communicated. And so in verse uh, 1 through 2, the implication here is that God is also equal opportunity. Not only does he reward, but he also judges. We don't like to think of God as judge, do we? We really, really don't like to think of God as judge. We would like to have God as only our Father. But God is both Father and judge. 
That's what's being communicated in chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? God is not only a father, but he is also judge. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, Scottish theologian, said this, The terrible thing for unbelievers is that in rejecting God's judgment on his life, the unbeliever also rejects the privilege of having God as his father. And in rejecting God's fatherly grace, the unbeliever encounters him exclusively as judge. For the believer, the knowledge that God is father transforms his view of him as judge. The knowledge that he is judge fills him with awe such that God is also his father. That's profound. That is really the difference between faith and unbelief. The knowledge that God is our judge teaches us really to be gracious and merciful, not to be censorious in attitude and outlook. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He is judge, but he doesn't give us what we deserve. Really important for us to hear and remember. So the implication is, if God doesn't give us what we deserve, then we ought to not give others what they deserve. Well, in verse 1, there's, well, there's a couple of questions that are in verse 1 and 2 that I want us to think through here. In what way are Christians the subject of God's judgment? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that if we are trusting in Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ, we are delivered out of ultimate final judgment. The final and eternal judgment is talked about in Matthew 25 where God separates the goats from the sheep and the sheep from the goats. And this is the great divide, and and this is not the kind of judgment that we're talking about, but it should fill our hearts with a reverence for God and His graciousness to us. If it weren't for His graciousness to us, we would be with the goats. But... There is a judgment which is limited for us because we are God's children. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the great passage on communion, talks about how at the church of Corinth there were some who were sickly and there were some who were sleeping, right? They were sickly and they were sleeping and the implication was that God had taken their life and brought them home to be with him. There was a a judgment that was taking place there that was not ultimate and final. We tend to think of death as ultimate and final, but that's not the ultimate and final. But God in his graciousness to us chastens us as children to get us to come back to him. And if we're not listening, he will then take us into heaven so that we see him face to face and he can look us right in the eye. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 talks about how that God chastens his children, that it's actually a benefit to you, an awareness to you, that you are his child if he lets, doesn't let you get away. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 also speaks and says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. There is a sense in which there is a judgment of reward as well for believers, in a sense, a judgment of reward. And that may sound strange to us, and I'm not sure if I fully grasp it and understand it, but I know that the Bible teaches it, that there is a sense in which there will be a lack of reward based on our faiths working out. There is a text in Revelation 14, 13, which speaks of the dead in Christ. And what does it say? Their works do follow them. There is, the, our life is here, and the fruit that comes out of it goes with us into glory, or the lack thereof. And so, there is an aspect in which this ought to fill us with great concern to live for Him. So, those are the ways in which a Christian is subject to God's judgment. Ultimately, we are spared from eternity in hell. And praise God for that. But let us not just be saved as if by fire. Let us be saved with reward and, and, and great, uh, great honor to cast at His feet. Number, second consideration, a question that comes out of this in verse 2. Um, are there any hazards to wielding the gavel? Well, there are hazards to wielding the gavel. In verse 2, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, you're going to be paid back in your own coin. There isn't a sense in which we are judged if we cast judgment on others, that there is the potential for that to turn around and we get that back on us. You can get paid in your own coin what you pay out. My grandfather used to say, um, I always got whatever I criticized anyone else for. Like, you know, he, he made fun of someone for a, a gimpy walk or something like that. <laughs> sure enough, another year down the road, he'd be struck with the same ailment, you know, like that kind of thing. But there is truth to this that in Luke, for example, Luke 12, 48, God uh, tells us that he operates on a very similar pattern and principle. He talks about how what you have doled out to others, it will then also be required of you. It's a corollary passage to this. The truth is we all do the same things, and we have to be very careful of the attitude of pride. James 3, 1 says, Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, you set yourself up as an authority, then you will be judged by your own authority. And judgment is to begin in the household of God. So we ought to spare ourselves the unpleasantries and do self-examination. And so that's that's a consideration. The first is that uh, you are going to be judged by God, ultimately. Second consideration is that you really are incapable of judging properly. Verses 3 through 5, what a clever analogy. The speck or the moat, uh, it's, it's failing me. The moat and the, what's the other item? The beam, okay, so it's still the beam. So the moat and the beam, the speck, you know, the, the just little, this little piece that just kind of sticks in there. 
You know, that little, that little thorn that's like sticking into your, you do woodworking and it just like it sticks in there and some, oak hurts the worst it seems. I don't know why. You know, you get a little bit of oak in your finger and it just kills you. And uh, Jesus is saying here, look, you stop for a moment. You can't, you don't have the capacity to judge properly. Really, you're not really concerned about righteousness. You're really concerned about getting even with the other person. If we were concerned about righteousness, we would be dealing with our own heart first. And if we claim that our only interest is in righteousness and truth and not at all about personalities, then we're going to be absolutely critical of ourselves as we are the other individual. Think about this. A really, really good artist, like a really good one, will be so critical of himself it doesn't matter if it's painting. It's true also of singing, of, of teaching, of maybe even skilled trades of engineering. A person who is going to get better at what they do is going to be super critical of themselves. They're their hardest critic. But a person who has a hypercritical attitude about other people is concerned with personalities rather than principles And the trouble is, for most of us, our desire is to condemn a person rather than to get rid of the evil that is in their heart. And a personal element in ourselves has got to be totally eradicated before we go and we spend time looking at another person's heart. And so Jesus is using sarcasm here. He's talking about that moat in the beam, and we can pretend to be very concerned and careful, but the process is just too delicate It's too delicate. We have to do the work within our own hearts. And if we don't, then we're hypocritical. God knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. And the only way that we can approach helping a brother is to recognize that our own spirit and attitude needs work. It needs work. A third area of consideration here in this text is found in verse 6. Verse 6, it's a kind of a balancing act here. The one verse really covers a balancing beam on the other first five verses. But in order to be able to judge others, you need the first five verses, right? But there are several levels of application in this verse that I think it's important just to think through. I mean, the, the obvious understanding of this verse is that we're not to give to... Uh, unworthy folks. What is holy, what is pure, what is good, if they're just going to just let it fall by the wayside and, and then even turn against you in the process. It's of no value. But there are several applications, several levels that we can apply this, I think. And the first is, and I think maybe pre-setting everything The whole world is the sphere of the gospel. It is to go out to all the world. There's to be a universal preaching of the gospel to all men. All men and women are urged to believe the gospel and to repent and turn. That is, presets everything. 
But that doesn't command us to engage in mindless evangelism with people who are stubbornly refusing to believe the truth. I mean, Matthew 15, 14, Jesus said to the Pharisees, leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind, both will fall into the pit. Jesus was saying, look, don't waste your time. Don't give your pearls to these swine. Walk away from them. 2 John 10 and 11, there are no chapters in that short letter, but in verse 10 and 11, Jesus, uh, John instructs us, John who was the apostle of love, he said, you know, don't welcome those who deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that we don't ever share the gospel with someone who is like a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. There are opportunities, and we need to be sensitive to those. But there is a sense in which we ought to limit our engagement with them. Jude, verse 22, says, Be merciful to those who doubt. In other words, there are certain people who doubt, and then there are certain people who are hardened, and you need to be able to assess and evaluate the difference between the two. For example, you cannot teach, and I think it's important here as an example to say, for us to understand this, that there is an inappropriateness to which we teach the ethics of Jesus Christ to unbelievers. For example, we can't teach an unbeliever about prayer as a pattern of relationship with God if they don't have a relationship with God to begin with. There's a distinction. We may actually trick them into a false sense of security, that if they are praying, therefore they are okay. And we have to be very careful of that. If there is a stubborn refusal to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may discover that to press them any further would cause it to backfire on us altogether. Another application at another level is that we ought to be evaluating people in a sense of how we show the gospel and share it with them. There are people who could be described as a dog or as being a part of the swine family. Now, we don't, I don't walk around saying, oh, there's a dog and there's a swine and there's a pig. and we, I don't do that. But there is a sense in which we evaluate and we, as we share the gospel, we, we think through carefully where people are at and we share what is appropriate for them and they're able to hear. Jesus was different with different groups of people. Think about the Pharisees, but then think about Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, right? He was a part of that group, but he was not really of the same caliber, was he? So it's not, it's not a stereotyping of people that I'm talking about here. It's a sensitivity to people even within groups. Think about two kings that Jesus entertained. You think about Pilate. He was very... He was talking to Pilate, and Pilate was asking about what truth is. And, but then with Herod, who knew who Jesus was, he didn't even answer or say anything. He didn't say a word. Herod ought to have known who he was. He didn't reserve, deserve a response. And so really, just using it as an illustration, there is an importance of recognizing different types of people. There is really nothing as pathetic as trying to witness to all people equally the same. 
you have to take time to think through who you're talking to. Who are you dealing with? I think of an illustration of this um, over the last couple of weeks. Someone asked me to go and take the gospel to a person in the hospital. I took a gospel track with me, and I went into them to share the gospel. But I had to spend time listening to the person to find out where they were And it came about through conversation, this guy was already trusting in Jesus Christ already. But I left a gospel track with him to read and to confirm and to uh, help him understand. Just on Wednesday, I had an opportunity again to, to minister to a man who was dying and his wife. I walked into the home. I was told in advance the lady was a very hard individual. I went and spent some time with the man in his room. I listened to him. I asked him, now, what is your background? What did you, what did, where have you come from? And he said, well, I'm Episcopal. I came up, I was grown, grew up Episcopalian. So right there, I knew he had familiarity with the basics. But I said, well, from your childhood, you, you have heard these things. Let me remind you of these things. And I took him to 1 Peter 3, 18, which was preached here today about the suffering of Jesus Christ, a man who was suffering and shared with him how that the just suffered for the unjust. And while he was suffering for things that weren't maybe directly his, there there was hope found in Jesus Christ who suffered for things which he wasn't charged with. And so I shared the gospel with him and and, and he resonated with it. So we have to evaluate carefully with whom we're talking to. We need to evaluate different generations, even. We cannot always start with Romans 3.23. We can't always start there. We may have to start with Genesis 1, because there's a generation here today that doesn't know that they were created by God for His glory. And they don't know what even sin is because they don't know that they've rebelled against God. We have to have a sensitivity to who we're talking to. The cross makes absolutely no sense to people if they don't know that they're in rebellion with God. So we have to think very carefully how we present the truth. I was thinking of that couple. I went out and sat with his, his wife. And Roseanne... She couldn't tolerate the truth directly. She had some very strong hurts in her past, particularly with the Catholic Church, and I had to go very carefully and indirectly. And uh, God allowed me to to sense that uh, there was some spiritual abuse that had happened in her acquaintance with the priesthood in the Catholic Church. Nothing, not a physical abuse, but a spiritual bullying that was taking place. And so God allowed me to relate to her about Abby's family, having a very similar experience a couple generations back, where uh, the, the father, Gabby's grandfather, was convalescing with TB on the front porch, and the priest came in and berated him for not being in church, and why haven't you been here? And, and I said, look, that's not real religion, The real religion is sensitive to the heart. So I was able to identify with where she was and then be able to draw in the gospel that way. Think of Jesus, John 4. Jesus allowed 
the woman at the well to talk about some things that she wanted to talk to, but then he, she, he went right back around to the gospel. He addressed her concerns. And so we need to consider all of these things when we evaluate people. We need to consider the devastating effect of sin on people. We need to remember, and I, we need to remember just the, the seriousness of sin. Sin is something that affects the heart so profoundly that, that we're, not just, we're not just like an automotive mechanic tweaking a few things under the hood. We're not, you know, uh, making some minor adjustments. When we deal with sin, what we're dealing with is something so profound it condemns us to hell. And it takes the blood of Jesus Christ to cancel it. We also need to recognize that people are not always capable of strong meat. And I understand that we're not all capable of strong meat. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 talks about how he really wanted to talk about Melchizedek and how Melchizedek points to Jesus Christ and get into all of those little details. But they couldn't handle it. They only could handle milk. Now, that wasn't necessarily a good thing. But we have to understand where people are are, and help them move towards the meat. We cannot always live on milk. We need to have meat. And so we have to have an understanding of the depth to which people can go. And I do believe that that fits within the context of not giving dogs what is holy and casting your pearls before pigs. We have, not that, not that all of God's people are pigs, but we just have to evaluate where people are at and help them move to another level carefully. There are so many considerations when we look at others. But the greatest ability is to see ourselves clearly. We have to see ourselves clearly. Let's close with an illustration. There was a lady that I had read about who was at the airport, and I can just visualize this because of some flights that I have done. She had a layover, and she... She went to the kiosk and got a magazine and got like a, a package of, of cookies. And so she sat down at her seat and the guy next to her all of a sudden picked up her pack of cookies and started to open them and she couldn't believe what she was seeing. How could that possibly be? How is it possible that, that's, that's audacious, isn't it? To reach over to, and you're like sitting right by, but she didn't say anything. Just watched to see what would happen. And he ate a cookie and then set the package down. And then she, she said, well, I'm not going to just let him eat the whole thing. So she reached over and got one. And then he went and got another one. And there was one left. And he broke it in half for her. <laughs> and so she was just thinking about how could this possibly be? So she got on the plane, and as she's sitting there in the plane, waiting for the on-flight instructions of how to prepare for takeoff, she reached into her purse, and there was her, book, her little package of cookies. <laughs> Do you see what happened? 
The truth is, we can be like that lady. We're not seeing clearly. We're not judging properly. We've got something stuck in our heart that needs to get taken out. And so, we just, we need God's grace. We need the humility to be able to look within and assess our hearts carefully. Tonight, I think we'll close in a word of prayer. I'm going to pray for our hunters that are going to hunt tomorrow. And uh, just for safety for all involved in the, in the county. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your loving kindness to us, your mercy. You have poured your grace upon us, grace upon grace upon grace. So, Father, help us to discern our hearts truly as we feel agitation rise, that we would deal with that, that we would also be able to carefully, charitably look at other people and help other people along for your glory and your, your praise. I pray, Father, that you would be with our county, that this hunting season would be a good, good season for all involved. Pray, Father, that uh, we wouldn't see injuries or accidents. Pray for good success, uh, for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.